Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for March 27th, 2023. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, we're excited about tonight's show. Uh, We are going to have an author of a really incredible book, uh, American Made, uh, Farrah Stockman is going to come on. She's also a member of the New York Times editorial board. We're going to mainly focus on her book, American Made, um, and the, the story she tells in there about um, you know factory working class workers and, and the plight of employment and their lives. Um, so we're going to have her on about 10 minutes. So we're excited about that. But until then, uh, there's a story that's kind of been brewing and I think it's gotten some attention in the um, national uh, political ecosphere, but I don't think it's gotten the attention it may deserve, given that most of the folks that um, you know, you know, are journalists and follow politics and talk about politics in a big way are a little older than the main users of this medium. And what I'm referring to is TikTok. Um, If for some reason you've been under a rock, um, you might not know what TikTok is, but TikTok is a social media platform, which is short videos. I'm not sure of the exact number of seconds, but I want to say it may be under a minute. It used to be called, I guess the precursor to it was called Vine, Musical.ly, and it um, has these short videos. And you can sit there on the app or site, and just go from video to video to video and never really leave that platform. Now, that's not exactly why it's entered into the political landscape, because I don't think a whole lot of this content is actually political, probably far less political than a Twitter is. But um, it is owned um, in some form by the Chinese government. They may actually have an uh, owner on paper who's not the government, but it has tight Chinese controls. And obviously, um, if something is a business in China, the Chinese government's involved. Well, um, politicians really of both parties are varying levels of concern about the dynamics of TikTok and it being on devices with other information. That's the setup for this thing. I'll kind of then now ask Catherine, first off, um, what's your thoughts on this debate around TikTok and kind of how it's unfolded. Well, you know, I didn't really think that much about it, but I heard um, a story on NPR about it the other day, and then you sent that um, story about it. So I, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give in. I'll read a little bit more. I'll get a little better, better informed about it. And and I'm concerned too. I mean, I, I think, I guess my immediate reaction is why doesn't one of these super smart 
people that we have all over the world or all over this country make up a new one and just, like, get rid of TikTok. I mean, I know that sounds simple, right? I I sound so like, oh, yeah, that's easy. But it seems like the logical next step. Um, But, yeah, I think it's a concern with all the data that is collected. I mean, we all have that experience on Facebook where we, you know, go to look up a recipe or something, and then five minutes later there's a ad on Facebook for, you know, chicken or, you know, soup or whatever it was that we were looking for. So um, it is a little it, it is a little concerning, especially because um, so many folks do spend so much time on it. And so there's that really increases the data in their profile, right? So if they keep looking at certain kinds of videos and where their location is and all that kind of stuff, so it really does build a profile of an individual, and that's always a concern, for especially for yeah, a foreign we, government. Yeah, and, and and there's a lot of things there, and we probably won't even touch on initially the the dynamics of how much time spent on it, even though that there's a whole conversation there. But Catherine, what you said about why didn't somebody just do something else? It's not that. I mean, you're kind of on spot in that. Um, YouTube has now developed something called Shorts, and apparently if you're on Shorts, and I don't watch a lot of those, I watch more longer-form videos, you can scroll up the same way. Twitter, and this may be something they had in the pipeline, or maybe something that Elon Musk pushed, because it was kind of after he took over, because the videos played differently. I remember that. If you go play a video on Twitter, then if you just when that one's playing, if you decide to scroll up, which actually I think I did the first time accidentally, it plays another video, just a seemingly like TikTok is, and I don't use TikTok. Um, I'm aged out of it too, I guess. Um, and then also, I want to say I've heard Instagram has something called Reels, and I would, and, and Instagram's owned by Facebook, so I guess if Instagram has it, Facebook by de facto has it. So there's at least three other sources that have this, but I don't know that the market share is what TikTok is. Because, Tim, before I come to you, my understanding, and I do think there's an apples and oranges um, uh, comparison, TikTok has more page views, because they count each video as a page view, than Google now. Now, once again, I think that is, like I said, apples and oranges. Um, Tim, what do you think the, the crux of this issue is? Well, this is different from your average issue in several ways. Uh, number one, when, when you're talking about our Congress and what they're talking about, it's bipartisan. How many times have we said that word lately besides none? <laughs> uh, multiple Congress critters on both sides are hammering TikTok as a major source of agreement in both parties that something needs to be done Uh uh, about it, and like I said, how many issues can anyone think of in which this can even be said? Number two, it, it's China. Uh, China is becoming the new, quote, new Cold War adversary and, and all that goes with it. And, and, and now, uh, and the third thing is the Internet it, it is now a, a battleground and 
and on the interna- international stage, this one is massive because it it, it uh, emanates from a country of 1.1 billion people. Then we have to look at the generational divide. There's 150 million people using TikTok in this country, most of them under the age of uh, 40. So... Um, that that's that's where we stand and uh you know now now there's there's major questions can the chinese actually harvest major info on subscribers i mean we have catherine mentioned that thing with the recipe major companies have been doing that for years in this company harvesting uh uh info uh, but uh, it's a little different when the Chinese are doing it. Are they doing so? And if they are, it, it, is there solid proof that they're doing it? So then we get into what is the answer. So this 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 is a, a, a story that you mentioned to me earlier this week, David, that you thought this story was more important than, uh, they're, uh, than they're carrying on. And I believe this story is going to be a major, major, major story, don't you? Yes, and I think it's important on two levels. One, there is the – actually, I, I take back. There's three levels, and there's no way we're going to get onto all the levels before we, we switch over to our guests here in a minute, which we're so excited about. But there, one level, and I think we ought to handle it first, is that – geopolitical, international, like do we need um, TikTok running on phones or or, um, uh, devices, iPads, laptops that may have sensitive information? Uh, Because that seems to be the primary governmental concern. That's where the bipartisanship is coming from. Now, here's the trick. You have um, a lot of Republicans, I think, that some of them, probably get it you know like if somebody like will hurd said oh this is a problem da 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 he's a computer scientist i think he understands it if somebody else said it they might just be like well this is a way to you know blame you know uh china on the democrats and and so i think there is some of that but then there's also a lot of democrats michael bennett um was i think the first democrat to you know latch onto this issue and then now president biden and so that's the geopolitical side, but there's going to be more layers to the story. But right now, I am so excited to welcome onto the Kudzu Vine for the first time from the New York Times and her outstanding book, American Made, author Farrah Stockman. Welcome, Ms. Stockman. Hi, thanks for having me on. Oh, so glad to have you on. Um, well, Ms. Stockman, you, since you hear me your okay? first time, yes, I can yes, hear you great. Hear you. Good. Uh, the first time, uh, this, this is the first time having you on, I just want to start off by um, letting you tell our listeners a little about your biography, particularly your journalism and, and political side of things. Um, where to begin? Um, I got my start as a freelancer in Kenya. Uh, one of the first big stories I ever covered was the Al-Qaeda bombing of the, of the Nairobi Embassy. Um, and I, yeah, I, I started over in Kenya. I was working as a volunteer uh, with street children for a couple of years, and then I decided to, to 
get an unpaid internship with the New York Times in Nairobi, and that's sort of how I got my journalism start. It was a not not a very traditional story, but um, you know, if you get your start in journalism over here, they send you to cover school board meetings in Vermont or something. And over there, it was like. <laughs> You know, it was like, go to Burundi and cover the Civil War. Nobody, Nobody's there. Nobody's covering that. Um, so, yeah, I got my start as a freelancer in East Africa. I covered um, uh, al-Qaeda. I covered the Rwanda genocide trials um, that the U.N. was holding and uh, in Tanzania, and then, I, and then somebody gave me a job at the, new, at the uh, Boston Globe. Um, took a chance on me because I had some very, very non-traditional background and um, came to work at the Boston Globe where I covered everything from crimes, weird murders to um, to a bit of politics and uh, and then they they brought me they sent me to Washington where I covered foreign affairs for the Boston Globe for seven years. So foreign affairs is my main uh, my main thing. Um, but uh, I did a, I did um, join the New York Times in 2016 um, to uh, cover politics, and I was six months pregnant when they when they hired me, and the election was that September, uh, or I'm sorry, that November, and I had my baby in May, and so it was a it was a little bit. It was a it was a funny time to come on the paper, but I, I covered the, the 2016 election for maybe a couple of months as a new mom um so that that was a year that, that changed my life and everybody's life so yes well that probably gave you an incredible perspective and i'm so glad you found your calling so we could be uh in my case listening to your book but many people reading your book um and Yay. so let me start off there first i want to tell you i i, I listened to well over 50 books a year. I mean, one per week, easy. Um, and so I saw the, the name of it, and I thought, well, I'll put that on hold. That looks kind of interesting. And finally the hold came in, and I started listening, and I was like, wow, this is really good. And then I kept listening. It was just so good. And I, I will tell you, Catherine and, and Tim can probably remember when I did. I probably mentioned stories from this book before I ever need to be a guest because I thought it was so insightful and impactful. Um, Thank so, you. Thank you. I'm the one reading it, too. <laughs> they got me to read the book, yes. too. It was, it was a crazy yeah, We have experience. authors yeah. all the time, and, they, yeah, and, they're, and they're not the one doing their audio book, um, and so it's nice to actually match the voice up that I heard before. So, But let me just start off with that. Yeah. How did you decide to write this story? Well, uh, so after uh, after Trump won, um, literally the the election night, I was at Wellesley College. I had been sent to Wellesley College, which was Hillary Clinton's alma mater, and I was one of probably ten New York Times journalists stationed around the country, uh, dispatched to kind of get very rich material for what we were told would be the, you know, this uh, historic night of the election of the first female president. And even at Wellesley College, they were giving lectures on the meaning of this, of, of what this meant to have the first female president. And, of course, the, all of those lectures were, you know, within hours, um, 
completely derailed by the by the news that Trump had won. And so, you know, I write about the scene in the book, actually, how shocked people were, how bewildered they were, how angry they were that so many people, especially in the middle of the country, had voted for Trump. And so I, I grew up in Michigan, and I started asking around people in Michigan because Trump uh, won by only 10,000 votes. And, you know, I'm asking people, why Trump? And they said, oh, he's going to bring our jobs back. He's going to bring the factories back. He's promised to bring the factories back. And it was something that, you know, a lot of people missed. They didn't, they didn't you know, they didn't uh, understand how much Trump was talking at these rallies about factories. He had a, a spiel where he would talk about, I'll never eat another Oreo cookie because the company that – that uh, makes Oreos had moved to Mexico. And, and so this hit a real chord in people. And, again, there's many explanations for Trump's uh, win in 2016, including um, just there's a whole range. I don't want to say there's only one, but this is the one that made sense to me. And it, if you think about Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, you know, these are places that lost lots and lots of jobs because their factories moved away and they were entirely hollowed out and they were waiting for someone to say the things that Trump was saying. And in fact, Trump, when it comes to factories moving overseas, he didn't sound that different than Bernie Sanders. You know, the system is rigged, the greedy CEOs are sending your jobs away, you know, and people have been waiting for someone to say that for many, many years. And so I just decided to find a place that um, that was losing factory jobs. And I found – Trump got into a weird Twitter war with a union leader named Chuck Jones uh, at, a, at a factory called Rexnord in Indiana. And it was moving its jobs uh, – it was moving to Mexico, shutting down, moving to Mexico – and um, and I said, let me just see what it's like to follow these people for seven months as the, as the factory shuts down and see what it feels like um, to be told that you're losing your job because those people over there are going to do it cheaper and uh, and see if they change their mind when, when he doesn't save their job. What do they – do they change how they feel about him? So I, you know, I, I found some characters uh, who were willing to let me follow them. Shannon was a, a female steel worker, a battered woman who, who, who got the courage and the money to leave her abusive man because of that job in the factory. And she worked her way up to be the, the heat treat operator. She ran the furnaces in that plant. And it, she was the first woman ever to do that, which was an incredible glass ceiling broken. And, um, you know, she was losing her job, and it was like she was losing her identity. She was the breadwinner of her family. That job was the thing that made her feel worthwhile. And so following her, uh, it was hard to get her to let me follow her around, um, uh, but she eventually did. Um, And then I met some other people in the plant. The plant was 40% black, about 40% black at the time, and I wanted to follow someone black to see how when they lost their job, would they have a different attitude about it. Um, I also followed uh, a white guy who was the union vice president um, who was very, very militant, 
very union militant, um, and yet uh, was a Trump voter. And so, um, you know, I just wanted to understand their lives better and really understand what is it that people lose when they lose their jobs? What is it that, that a place loses when a factory moves away? Um, and I really learned so much from them. I'm so grateful that they let me into their lives. If, you, if you're into the book, you, you know, I talk about their sex lives, their money, their, their spouses, their kids. It was, it's, it was, it's really a fly-on-the-wall kind of experience. And, um, and so I, I had to really get to know them very well. I followed them for four years, pretty much the entirety of the Trump administration, to see how their worldview changed uh, over time yes well you anticipated one of my questions perfectly to segue into my last question you do like you do a great job telling the lives of john wally and shannon uh, you, you think you were an anthropologist cultural anthropologist when you were telling this story um but i noticed as i was listening and i don't know if you said the dates or uh, how old they were early in the book but as i listened through i began to figure out because uh, the first part of the book, I thought, these people are older than me. I'm currently 51. Um, and I'm like, these people are older than me. And then as I listen, I go, wait, he graduated like a year before me. Uh, she's the same. Age. or whatever. You know, All of them seemed like they were within yeah. a year or two of my age, yet they had experienced points in life like you know, having kids. I'm not even a grandparent, but having grandkids, um, uh unfortunately, sadly, for Wally's death, and some major medical issues far sooner than I have. Um, and yeah, I'm a white yeah. I'm a professional. What did you take from the fact that they moved so fast through life in ways outside of work? Yeah, I mean, it really opened my eyes to what class is. You know, we pretend that, that we're a classless society in the United States, and it, we're not like uh, working class people. It, it's a, it's a, it's, it's not just how much money you make. In fact, I would say that it's not income doesn't have anything to do with it. I would say it's a culture, and um, it's a, it's a, it's the sensibility, the working class sensibility, uh, was so strong. They were, they were all. Uh, Shannon was my very same age. We were both the same age. And so I could completely track her life, you know, when she was having her son and trying to figure out how to, you know, how to make ends meet. I was, I was in college when, she, you know, when I got my first job, she was starting to work at the factory when I got my first job at the Boston Globe. And then at the year I started at the New York Times, she's getting laid off. And it was such a, a revelation of, hey, the stuff I'm doing is stuff that society celebrates. It's stuff that, um, you know, it, uh, people like me who have a degree like mine have been taken care of in this economy. People like her who don't have a who have a GED have not been taken care of in this society. And that's, I think Trump is a symptom of the backlash to that in part. I really think... People are pissed off about uh, feeling like um, uh, the powers that be uh, took care of the jobs of the the well-off and the college-educated, and 
and the people who didn't go to college have been losing ground for 30 years, and they're pissed off about it. used to be that a guy could go get a job in a factory and support four children in a pretty middle-class life um, with one income, and that is no longer. The people who, who work in factories now, if they're making it, they've got a lot of people helping them. And it's partly the uh, it's partly unions. It's partly that you know globalization. These jobs have gone to places where people earn three dollars an hour. No American can compete with that. You can't compete with three dollars an hour, right? And and so I just think um, I learned so much from them about what class is and how the differences. You know, Shannon and I were both women. Uh, my mother is African American. Wally was African American. We had that in common, um, but they had much more in common with each other than they did with me when it came to their culture and what they felt was, you know, just how they lived their lives. They were all grandparents in their forties. Uh, they they were all grandparents in their forties, and I was here. I was having my first child at the age of forty-two. So it was, you know, I'm not saying which is better because I actually think the white-collar life, you know, by the time you're done getting your education, getting a job, getting a house, all that stuff, by then it's really hard to have a kid, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, let's, be, let's get real. Um, and I lived so far away from my family, my parents, my sister. So they all lived right next, you know, they, they live near their adult children or with their adult children. They live near their parents. And so I just think they had different values. They didn't want to have to move across the country to find a job. They wanted to be where, where their family was. And so I just, you know, for a long time, you know, it's normal to think of you and your friends as normal, as the as the normal reference point. But I stopped, I realized after meeting Shannon, John, and Wally that they are more like the average American than the people I hang out with and surround myself with. Because two-thirds of Americans do not have a four-year college degree. Two-thirds. So, you know, if you have a, a college degree, you are one of the of the few. And uh, and that's, I think, that realizing that and realizing that the government needs to be more responsive to people like them, it was the biggest eye-opener of the book for me. Yes. Well, I know we're getting short on time, but I've been so rude to monopolize the time. Do we have time for Catherine and Tim to each ask a question? Sure, sure. Okay. Well, I'll pass it to Catherine, I'll pass it to Tim, and then we'll close it out after that. Catherine? Hey, thank you so much for being on. I, I'm, I'm going to take this discussion in a little bit different direction. Um, I read the excerpt that um, David forwarded to me, and now I plan to read the book because it was fascinating. But what it brought up for me, I, I also grew up in Michigan. I live in Atlanta now, but I grew up in Michigan, and I grew up in the 60s, and the promise was that, you know, technology was going to allow us more leisure time and was going right. to solve all our problems. We are going to have four-day work weeks, and it was going to be great. You know, this was – technology was the promise. And all it's and, – and I, I, I did feel like technology played a big – plays a big part in what is happening in these factories because if it weren't 
for technology, we couldn't really move all this stuff to Mexico or China or wherever because we need the technology to make sure everything's happening. So how did we go wrong? Like, how did we, how did we lose that vision of uh, let? And I feel like we've, instead of allowing technology to free us, it's actually trapped us. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting observation. I would say that um, actually if there's a factory here that still exists in the United States, it's because of technology. Um, uh, The only way that a factory in the United States can compete with a factory in China or Mexico is because it, it has advanced manufacturing and you're, you know, the factories of, of, uh, that exist today are high-tech, one person running, you know, doing, you know, running machines that do the jobs that hundreds of people used to do. So I, what I found most interesting was how people were so intimate with their machines. They knew that that machine was an extension of them in a way. Shannon would talk about her furnaces like they were people and as soon as you're you know you knew how to fix it you knew how to keep it running they didn't put a lot of investment into these into this these machines the the company didn't and so it was up to the workers to like keep them running and um i just you know as soon as one of those machines was taken apart loaded on a truck and bound for mexico that person knew they were out of a job so there, there was a, there's an interdependence between machines and people, and 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 uh, it's, it was, you know, I mean, you're asking a deep philosophical question about technology, and I, I don't think there's a way around it. We have to, we have to have it um, because that's the only way we're going to be able to be competitive with the rest of the world. In India, people live on a dollar a day, right? They're, we're never going to outwork them like in a manual labor job, but we could compete if we actually sent our kids to decent vocational schools, right? If we actually right. had training for them, we don't. We don't invest and anything. If we, and, and if we respected those careers and gave them the yes. the importance yes. that they hold. I always say that it's easier to find a dentist than a plumber. Yeah, I think the trades have gotten gotten. I mean, look, there's a lot of wealthy, there's a lot of really well-off plumbers in in this world. But I, I, I mean, I think that we definitely need to respect those professions more, and we need to have more like companies need to pay uh, to to train their people, and we just need a we need a better plan for how to actually train our people to be competitive in the 21st century. Because man. All around the world, there are, and I travel a lot. People are hungry. They are, they are, they are hungry for um, uh, for the good jobs, for the good life, and they are really willing to work for it. And they are educated. They're educating their people. So we need we need to do the same to be competitive, for sure. Thank you. Thank you for that answer. And I'm going to pass it to Tim. Good evening, Miss Stockman. Thank you for being with us. Um, I've been involved in politics for a long time, but that's not my day job. My day job was I'm a retired factory worker, the okay. son of 
the son of two factory workers, the grandson of four factory workers, multi-generational. And then I look right. at Congress who makes our laws. 175 yeah. members of Congress are lawyers or have law degrees. So truthfully, yeah. people like me ask, what would they or a corporate CEO know about people like me? Not a whole hell of a lot. <laughs> I hate to say it. You know the answer right there. You know the answer right there. Um, uh-huh. I mean, I, I think it's I think it's gotten worse over time. I really do. I think, uh, you know, probably in your grandparents' day, um, there were a lot more people in Congress who hadn't gone to college um, mm-hmm. or who had different alternative experiences. And mm-hmm. today... Uh, you know, it's that's not the case. You can probably mm-hmm. count on on two hands, or one, even one hand, maybe the number of uh, members of Congress who don't have a four-year degree. So we kind of, even if you want to do right by people, even if you want, if you have the best intentions of the world, and and then you know, you you, you can't because you don't actually know what what their lives are like. You don't, you, 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 you're living in a, I'll give you an example. We govern by tax code. Everything is like a tax credit or a tax this or that, which means you have to wait for tax season to come and get that money out. It's just not the way that most people can, you know, live their lives. It's too complicated. You need an accountant and a lawyer, you know, it, that that is a, a prime example of how the government just isn't serving ordinary uh, ordinary people, um, and I just I don't think it's either. I think both parties kind of suffer from the classism uh, in that we we don't have normal people running for office anymore. It's too expensive to run for office, frankly, yeah. and uh, and and so I just think that we need a we we need. At the very least, um, we need more more people who are in touch. Uh, what was your, what was your family building, by the way? In in the factory. Well, we well in in my particular case, I worked in one of the largest milling operations in in, yeah. in the in the United States. My parents, my mother worked in textile. My father yeah. Uh, yeah. worked in a uh, steel manufacturing yeah. plant. Yeah. Um, so, and, and then all four of my grandparents were in were in the, the textile industry back in the old mill village days. Yeah. Well, I will. So, I would like to end on a end on a on a high note in that I do think there's been a lot of bipartisan conversation about how to bring manufacturing back to the United States. We've heard it, mm-hmm. and I I consider it to be a big overlap between Trump and Biden. No one talks about it. But both of them placed a a heavy emphasis on bringing manufacturing back. And and a lot of things the Biden administration has has done in in the last couple years have been um, focused on trying to bring certain advanced manufacturing back to the United States. The jury is still out about whether it's going to work. Um, but there's a lot of money being uh, put into it, and I think we do need that investment to uh, to uh, make sure that the, there are jobs, blue-collar jobs, um, of the 21st century available for, for people's kids, for sure. All right. 
Well, with that, Ms. Stockman, I'm going to send it back to David, and I thank you for being on with us. David? Yes, well, let's close it out this way. The book's American-made. We know it's in paperback because when I was booking you, we, we, you mentioned that it is now about paperback. Tell our listeners if there's anywhere you would like them to – means that they would like them to purchase it, and then anything else you want to plug, your, the newspaper, uh, your social media, now's your chance. Oh, wow. Oh, well, um, definitely read the book. Um, I We try not to do too many spoilers, but um, I'd, I'd love to uh, – I'd love to uh, have people, um, if you read it and you like it, leave a review um, on Goodreads or Amazon. Um, I, you can probably even buy the book from Random House, but um, I, don't, I don't tend to uh, promote um, any particular one place to buy the book, but um, love, to, love to hear from readers, love to hear from people who've, uh, who've enjoyed it. And uh, I have a Twitter handle which is um, F. Stockman. So I'm an F. Stockman, and, uh, yeah, please please uh, keep in touch and um, let me know how, what you think of the book if you end up reading it. All right. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was awesome. Maybe there will be a, another topic you want to be on the show, and we would love to have you back if, if you're able. Great. Thank you so Great. much. Well, uh, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Keep Thank in you. touch, y'all. Take care. Uh, yes. All right. Ferris Stockman, author of American Made, and also uh, on the New York Times editorial board. Um, just a fascinating insight. Uh, so glad she could join us this evening. Now, let's go back to our discussion about TikTok. We talked about the one thing was going to be that there's a, a, you know, a geopolitical side to this thing where we have to worry about our nation's security. And that's where a lot of politicians are agreeing. The second thing, and and this is where it gets politically tricky, and maybe it shouldn't be the motivating force, is that there is a generational divide. And and one of our frequent guests, uh, John Del Volpe, he did a whole substack on this where they polled on this. And if you ask a Democrat or Republican, an independent over 40, maybe even over 35, they're like, and you explain the problem, they're like, yeah, ban Twitter. Find something else. No problem. And then if you add, ask people that are younger, that are in Generation Z, IGN, Zoomers, there's like three names for this generation, by the way, people that are like under 29 through some point, like in high school right now. So your youngest voters and your soon-to-be voters um, are like, oh, no, you can't ban TikTok. It's so vital to our daily life. And so you have this generational divide. Now, of course, we as people that are older could go, well, you kids just don't know better. Um, You just don't understand. And then, of course, they may say, well, we do understand, and then they vote some people out. So people might have to die on this hill if it's not explained in a certain way. Tim, what is your thought on that generational issue in which there could be a backlash among the youngest voters in our country. Absolutely, there can be a backlash, and absolutely they can uh, vote in a block. 
uh, ask Joe Biden, who who one of the main reasons he's president right now is because of young voters. One reason that, that the Republicans didn't do any better than the midterms in the midterms last year was, again, young voters. One reason the Democrats did so well in the 2018 midterms, young voters, they will vote as a bloc. Uh, they feel very strongly about their issues, as they've seen, and not only do they feel strongly about about their issues, when they vote a certain way, they want something done about their issues. They care about this. Uh, they're, they're bringing up a valid point, like, wait a minute, what about the First Amendment? Well, you know what, that's a pretty good question. If we start banning... Internet platforms, uh, are we violating free speech? Um, and, and a lot of these young people, and we've seen them on TV, they use TikTok as a major income source. And and they're basically saying, you know what, these congressmen and these old people, you don't know what you're talking about. Do they have a point? Well, do they? Yeah, uh, an interesting point there, by the way. Remember, this is a uh-huh. Chinese company. American workers right. are paid better than Chinese workers. That's why we just had our last guess that American workers are paid more, more better than workers in that case. Mexico. TikTok doesn't pay its creators nearly as well as a lot of American companies. So if the creators decided to move and say, forget TikTok, let's move over to YouTube Shorts, Twitter, you know, Instagram Reels, we're going to get paid better, and we're going to do something that possibly could, you know, be a benefit to geopolitics. That'd be good, but that seems like it's a very high-level thinking. It's kind of like a lot of times we say, hey, we should ban, you know, plastic straws because they're bad, and then people go to the restaurant and they go, ooh, these paper straws feel weird. They, They get soft too fast. And it's inconvenient, and we don't do stuff. If we ban TikTok because we're used to it, it might just well, be we're dealing with something inconvenient. Well, I, I want to get Catherine well, here. Cam, I, I, think I am because I'm going to ask both of you a question right now that I want you all to deal with. This is a bigger question, a, a major question. Should Congress regulate the Internet? Y'all take it away. Catherine, you want to the first stab at this? You know, it's so hard to – it's a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. And we mm-hmm. – I think we tend to favor, you know, free market and let the market decide, right? So that, mm-hmm. you know, TikTok is the, is the thing right now, but how long will that be? Is um, is there something else that will take over at some point, um, or do we have to control it and regulate it? Um, I think it's I I, I, I don't have an answer, but I think it's got to be whatever. If they choose to do something like that, they've got to be very careful about how how we how they do that and how we receive it. So um, I still hold out for someone coming up with a better idea. 
Yeah, this is an interesting question, and I think a lot of times it goes back to can an Internet company ban or limit what a subscriber says? And I think they can because if you know what the Internet is, it is a platform for everyone. So if I build a website and I pay the hosting and I put that website on, and my website has the most horrible speech imaginable, maybe my First Amendment rights are protected. But if I go onto Facebook or Twitter or Instagram and I put that same speech on there, I think they have the right to say, shut it down because it's their service. They're saying don't do that on our service. Now, we're talking about a country here in China. Now, here's where it gets tricky, or here's where the solution might be. And, Catherine, this is where maybe a different source comes in. Can a country put a higher tariff on imports to, to help American businesses? So we know China is an import. It's through the World Wide Web, and that just seems like it's ubiquitous. It didn't come over a container ship. But we know about net neutrality coming up, and I've heard that it's really kind of dicey if we get rid of net neutrality, so I'm really in in the total not in favor of that. But if one piece of that could be that if a country could be detrimental to us, you know, a Russia, a China, a North Korea, could we possibly put in the form of tariffs slowing that service down greatly? Do we think the kids are going to – put up with something loading slow? Are they going to go to the service that loads faster? You didn't have to ban anything. You just made it slower using a tariff type, an export-import type framework. So I think that's something that could be looked at. Now, the political side to this, I will talk about another thing that happened, and because I'll tell you this, I believe that this is dicier for the Democrats because as you mentioned, Tim, who does better with younger voters? Democrats. If these younger uh-huh. voters say, oh, man, they shut down TikTok, we're just going to stay home. We're going to give the Republicans another look. You know, We're going to vote on some other issue, whatever it may be. That could cause the Democrats to lose. Is it worth it? Are there other bigger issues like the you know, sanctity of our democracy, like reproductive rights, whatever it is? And so we'll have to put that calculus in. But I'm, I'm going to tell you, a Republican side of this, before the 2020 election, Melania Trump, who I don't think was very political, she got all up in arms about an issue that affected this group of voters, this group of citizens, and it was vaping. And she went to Donald Trump, and she said, all these kids, these people that are these ages, high school, even down into middle school, college age, they're people that never would have smoked. They never would have had a nicotine addiction, and they're doing this vaping, this electronic form of smoking that we really don't know anything about. But we know what we do know is could, you know, heat up and cause lead to get in your body and systems. The the early evidence is not good. So she shares this with Donald Trump, and to their credit, they said, hey, let's really come down on some regulation uh, on the vaping industry. And then some Republican pollsters got involved, and they said, you know who votes? Vapes more than likely. So it's these younger folks, but it's also some older voters that are our voters. They're far more likely to be Republican, and they feared a backlash on locking down on vaping 
and a lot of that went away. There was a calculus to it. So this is the inverse side. So sometimes everybody's in agreement on something, but they say, "Uh uh-oh, we might lose. And then it gets a lot trickier. Catherine, do you think something like that could happen with TikTok in the next few months before the election really heats up? Hmm. Uh, sure. I mean, it could happen. Um, I, 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 it's a little bit different because we've got both Democrats and Republicans uh, examining this. So, you know, it would it would be one one segment of one party changing their mind about it or something. But, uh, yeah. well, well, I think yeah, in the vaping case, it was pretty bipartisan that, that vaping was seen as a, uh, a, a very potentially um, negative behavior in our society. So I do think there's some, some parallels. Um, and, and, Tim, I want to get to the last one. I'm going to have, let's hear the first question on this one. And this is a bigger, deeper, less political question. 60 Minutes actually did a story earlier this year about TikTok. And probably the most interesting part of that story was that China has TikTok too. And China has mm-hmm. figured out that this form of media is, I won't say addictive like heroin or anything like that, but it's where people spend tons and tons of time on it. And so in China, they don't let you spend as long, and the content is far more educational than it is in America. China has a very, very different domestic TikTok than we do. So even if we switched over a different platform, if it was just more and more garbage just flowing through some American company instead of some Chinese company, is that still a detriment to our society? Well, we're a free society, and we we can't say, hey, you know, that's a good idea China had. We're we're going to do what they did. That that probably wouldn't play well on the evening news. Um, a, a, another thing that's happening, though, that I think is even more interesting in the fact that three years ago, TikTok for its users and its creators was gener- generating about $750 million a year. Pretty good-sized company, but there's companies on the Internet that dwarf that, right? Well, now, in 2023, three years later, it's generating almost $7 billion in income for its creators and its users who, who make money off of it. And it's the largest growing platform on social media for the last two years. Is it too big to fail now? Is it Has it gotten too big to really mess with now? And a final thought is the fact that, and, and you said it yourself very early uh, in the in the show, most of the videos are not political. Of course, China's going to give it a little bit more free reign to, to do stuff than they normally would with anything, even though they push the educational stuff. And 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 we don't see really political stuff much on there either. So then again, we get down to the final question, don't we, guys? Is, is it just because it's Chinese? 
And is China doing what we think they're doing? Yeah, and someone's got to look at that. And of course, I guess if it's yeah, you know, it's too late, and they were oh, too bad. And if they weren't, um, oh no, we overregulated China. It's just going to be a really interesting thing to look at, and it does feel like it's hit that peak to where it's not a fad. It may be too large just to regulate. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, you can probably say, "Hey, you can't have it on your government devices and that kind of thing," but uh-huh. um, but more than that. So so we will see. And I'll go ahead and tell you this: I have almost one hundred percent certainty that this won't be the final time we discuss uh, this TikTok issue no. at some point. <laughs> and I'll tell you this: it's not that it doesn't have political content; it just has so much other content that the percentage-wise. Uh-huh. Uh, the politicians uh-huh. kind of drowned out, if you will, yeah. um, comparatively. Yeah. Well, let's let's pick back up on an issue quickly that we didn't quite get to. We spent so much time with Congressman Andy Ogles, we didn't have time for Tennessee Governor um, Randy McNally. Tennessee, as a state, we've been discussing less and less because it's just, just frankly not a very persuadable state anymore. Republicans have free reign. And I wonder if the reason they're having situations like Andy Ogles and like Jerry McNally is because um, there's just you know no real competition in November in so many places. But let me back up. If you haven't heard about Lieutenant Governor Jerry McNally, you could probably just read the regular articles off of the Tennessean and other news sources. Also, you could look on last week tonight. They had some raw video and some interviews that people played with him. And Saturday Night Live even picked up on Lieutenant Governor McNally. Lieutenant Governor McNally is a 70-something-year-old man that seems like a typical 70-something heterosexual white man from Oak Ridge, Tennessee, because I do remember that he was from Oak Ridge. Um, But he liked multiple videos and actually commented on multiple videos in a very provocative way of a young man in particular that did not have a lot of clothing on, that the pictures were meant to be what they were, and yet this uh, politician who's also been very anti-gay in a lot of his stances um, liked these videos in this way, uh, which was – you know, very interesting, and, and uh, there's been a lot of, you know, talk made of this and controversy. I haven't seen as much about it um, this week as there was last week. Um, I, I think the defense, which I love this, was he's just a very provocative liker on the Internet, um, you know, a, a robust liker. I've never heard something quite like that. Catherine, um, what have you seen and what are your thoughts on Lieutenant Governor McNally? Well, I've read a little bit about it. I uh, I suspect it's like I don't know. I I suspect it's just an old man who doesn't know how to use the internet. Um, and, hmm. yeah. But you know, that's just me. I I, I think. Uh, I just think there's a lot of other important things to think about in the world and 
what an old man does sitting in front of his computer is not really that important to me, but that's me. You know, that's how I think about it. But it doesn't feel um, like a – I mean, the the bottom line is he should – he shouldn't be the lieutenant governor because he's too old. But I mean, he's, he's only seventy something. He's not that old. But I think the bigger issue. I heard more than one place they called him a hypocrite, and that's never a word that anybody likes to be called. In really any form, but particularly politics, is being a total hypocrite on what your personal feelings may be and your actual public persona and how you treat others. Um, Tim, what are your thoughts? Well, he did more than just do likes. He he actually left some comments like he in, in one comment he said, I love this picture and had a heart emoji there with it. Well it was a pic of a young man by the name of Franklin McClure in briefs in in, in his undies and that was all. A twenty year old gay man. And there's some other comments that he made in, in, in other places on that particular page. And uh, naturally, his supporters said that, well, it's all the liberal media's fault for blowing it out of the water. Well, I mean, you know, they can take that with a grain of salt. Uh, I agree with Catherine that there's worse problems in the world, and one reason it probably has died down a good bit uh, is the fact that Tennessee right now is so heavily dominated by, you know, the Republican Party that they could basically just squelch something like that. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it's just an, an older fella being nice to people on the Internet and, and – uh, blow it off like that, and I think that's what's happened. Yeah, and it's not an election thing in Tennessee, so I do think that is going to be another um, help to him. And, and he is older to the point where I will tell you this. He actually seems, when they interviewed him, he seemed a little older than his actual numeric age, um, uh-huh. just in the way he kind of you know, reacted to that. So he may decide to not seek re-election because here's the thing. I think it actually would hurt him more in a Republican primary, um, mm-hmm. you know, just being very cold and calculating and political about it. I think in a Republican primary, if it got made an issue of it, it would really hurt him there because if he did make it out of the primary, you know, Tennessee is just statewide as a very Republican state at this point. Um, it may have mm-hmm. Memphis and, T- and Nashville and Chattanooga and Knoxville, but – uh, the parts that aren't those cities are, and even really Knoxville is very Republican to be a, a college town in a, a larger city. Um, it's just a very, very Republican state otherwise. Well, um, I want to thank Ferris Stockman again for coming on the show. Been a great show. Um, we are not 100% sure if our next show will be in two weeks on Sunday, or we may have a show in the hiatus. I tried to book something up because next week is um, spring break, um, and I personally won't be in town. And so we may end up coming up with something before Sunday and look for that in your feeds. Otherwise, we'll be back in two weeks. Uh, Our guest, uh, Claire Constantine, will be from Kentucky talking about their odd year 
constitutional office races, including governor. So until then, in the kudzu vine. Good night, Good night guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and united 